Um, I think we sometimes have a false dichotomy that the Holy Spirit only works in like spont- uh, spontan- spontaneous acts, right? And so, I mean, I've known guys who won't like prep for sermons. They won't even know like what they're going to preach or what text, and they'll just ask the Spirit to like show them a text. I'm like, I don't think that's a spirit. I think that's called laziness. Uh, I think it's a different spirit. Um, I think the spirit works through preparation and planning and those kind of things. But um, I think we're going to be in uh, John chapter 20 this morning. Now, I don't cry often when I preach, uh, which is, I mean, for one, I'm kind of a crier, okay? So I cried when I watched The Notebook and Free Willy, okay? And the season finale of Breaking Bad, all right? I'm not proud of it, but it happened, okay? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a crier, but... Don't cry a lot when I'm preaching, maybe like three or four times in my life. And, and part of that is I've just kind of always felt it was manipulative, right? And so, um, I mean, I do, again, know people who will put in their notes, right? Give tears here if you have them. I mean, this, you, you're playing, this is the part where I cry. I know, there, I used to know this guy who preached. Every time he preached, he cried at some point during the sermon. I mean, and I'm not exaggerating. Literally, 100% of the time, he would cry while he was preaching, um, and so, I mean, I've done silly things before, so I've written jokes out, right? I've gone through, I've put, like, whisper here on my sermon notes, but I've never once been like, give tears, all right? Cry here. Um, but occasionally, two or three times, again, I've preached probably 500, 600 times, and two or three times I started crying while I'm preaching. One of them, though, was at a middle school retreat I did a couple years ago. So 300, 400 kids at this middle school retreat uh, at a camp called Pine Cove. And uh, on the last session we were there, I was preaching, and, and the theme of that last session was going out, because we're going back home, so going out into your world, and joining Christ on his mission there, and, and even at your middle schools, and even at your house, uh, you know, doing the things that he's called you to do, and reaching the people he's called you to reach. And so I was telling a story to illustrate this kind of point about a childhood friend of mine who I had, who was kind of my partner in crime growing up, and he moved away, and then I found out later, years later, that he died in Iraq. He joined the military and died in Iraq. And I always felt really bad that I was never able to kind of share my faith with him and never able to go back and be like, hey, those things that we used to do together, that's not who I am anymore, you know, and, and tell him about Jesus and those kind of things. Now, as I was telling the story, I've told it before. I've preached on it before. I've been in sermons before. It's just one of those things. I'm putting a sermon together that morning, okay, for these kids, and I put in there, tell Garrett's story, okay? So I'm preaching it. Out of nowhere come the waterworks, all right? And I can kind of feel it, and I'm like, oh, no. And then, boom, the sobbing uncontrollably. Uh, and people start crying in the audience. And, I mean, it's just, it's nasty, okay? And immediately, I'm mad at myself. I mean, I can barely talk. And I'm like, what is going on? I don't feel that sad, right? But for whatever reason, I was just sobbing like a little girl. Uh, and I'm going and going and going. I finally kind of recover, and we end the sermon out. And what makes me more mad is that afterwards, everybody, I mean, every single person in that room is crying and it's coming to me saying it was the best sermon ever. I'm like, no, it wasn't. It was a mediocre sermon at best, but I cried. Okay, so, so all of a sudden it's this real touching, this real moving thing. And it got me thinking about how powerful tears are. I mean, like how powerful it is for someone to cry in front of you. Um, but if you think about it, even like a stranger, like if you see a stranger on the street crying, there's some kind of like change that takes place inside of you. Like you immediately want to go protect them want to find out what's happening and have this kind of big brother, big sister, father, mother kind of mode take over you for that person. There's something just real powerful. If you can put tears somewhere, right? I mean, it's, it's kind of this really manipulative thing. This kind of, if you can cry on command, you, you kind of have a, a upper hand in, in social relationships. Um, they're real powerful and they're kind of weird too, right? I mean, it's kind of a weird thing that our faces leak, leak water, okay, at times. So my parents uh, adopted a little girl, and, and so there's all these situations that happen that you would never think of, right, until you see it from her perspective. So 
I mean, growing up, she'd never been at McDonald's or a bowling alley or the movie theater, and you never wonder, you know, what would it be like to go to the movie theater for the first time and not know that this existed? And then you get to see it, right? And you can see, like, what in the world is going on? Well, one day my, she, I mean, she had some behavior problems, and, and one day my parents were kind of on her, and she was all upset, and they were kind of in a tiff, and, and she went up to her room, and she was crying. And my parents were real upset at her, um, but she had, she never, I guess, I don't know if she'd never cried tears before, or just never had to explain to her, but she comes down to my parents, who are still kind of mad, right, at the situation, and is all worried, like freaked out, like, what's wrong with me? And they're like, what? And she's like, something's wrong with my eyes. Because there's water kind of coming down her eyes. And then explain to her, those are called tears. It just happens. Right? It's hard to be upset when the little girl's like, why is my eyes having water coming out of it? Um, she didn't know, right? Leaky face syndrome. What's going on here? Some hole is not plugged up that should be plugged up right here. So I started researching and crying, okay? If you don't know this about me, I'm kind of an expert with Google. Uh, and so a few videos, a few articles. Now, um, there are three types of tears, okay, when you're crying. One is... Just your everyday kind of tears that moisturize your eyes. These are going all the time. Um, then you've got tears that come with irritants. So if you're like peeling onions, right, or if dust gets in your eye, or if you're watching a chick flick, okay, I'm not crying. There's something in my eye, right? The irritants will produce a type of tear. And then there's this third type of tear, um, an emotional tear, okay? Now, human beings are actually the only animal we know of that cries in this way, that has emotional tears. And in fact, if you were to... Um, like actually dissect a tear, look at what it's composed of. Emotional tears are made out of different things than those other tears are. Um, I mean, it's an actual different kind of tear. Um, uh, the, like an irritant tear is a lot of water and stuff like that. Uh, emotional tears actually have like chemicals in them, stress chemicals. You're actually kind of releasing stress um, with your eyes. And so um, the past maybe 10 or 15 years, a lot of people have kind of put their hand forward and tried to figure out why it is that human beings emotionally cry. Why it is that we make these kind of unique tears um, and, and, and send them down our face. And so um, Darwin, who's real famous for kind of finding the evolutionary biological explanation for stuff, um, he gave up with tears, with human emotional tears. He said, I don't know. It's an anomaly. It's random. There's no purpose for it. I have no idea. Um, again, in the last like 20, 25 years, um, a whole bunch of different theories have come forth. And so there's actually a couple of like, best-selling books that have come out trying to advance these kind of things. One of them, um, one of my favorites is the aquatic ape theory. Uh, so again, think like kind of evolutionary, um, trying to find a, an understanding of what's going on here. The idea was a long time ago, back when we were apes, um, you, uh, we were living in a saltwater environment. And so our bodies aren't made for saltwater. And so um, kind of during that transition period out of the saltwater environment, um, our bodies need a way to get rid of salt that we didn't need. And so hence tears and sweat. That's why they're salty. Is a way of our body flushing out the sweat that we didn't need. Now, most people have rejected that. Even I mean, most scientists say that's not that's not a very good theory. Um, another theory that's kind of come up evolutionarily, uh, biologically, is the white flag <coughs> theory, which is a good one. And this is that tears are a way of surrendering to your enemy. Um, so, I mean, physiologically, you're blurring your vision, right? You're like, I'm not going to fight you anymore. Um, and tears are a way of saying, like, I'm done, right? So, I mean, you can imagine if you're beating someone up. Okay, I've beat up a lot of people in my life, you can tell. If you're beating someone up and they started crying, I think you'd, you'd probably want to stop, right? I mean, even like if you're yelling at someone, you're just really giving it to them. And then they just kind of like, just collapse, right, in tears. You might still be mad at them, but there's something that's going to kind of change in that moment, right? Again, it's kind of like this, this very like surrender um, posture when you, you cry to somebody. So, so maybe it's kind of this defense mechanism, right? Um, before you get killed when you're facing an enemy, this is a way you can communicate clearly to them, right? I'm not kidding. Watch my body language. Watch the tears come down my eye, um, come down my eyes, come down my face, those kind of things. Now, um, all those theories, the, the one that's 
by far the most popular and, and kind of adapted by, uh, adopted by most scientists right now is the social distress theory, okay? And, and, and this understanding of tears is that our bodies have this kind of emotional ability to cry and to make these tears as a way of communicating to other people, um, as this kind of symbolic way of showing helplessness, of showing defeat, of showing pain. And in fact, if you think about all the things that a human being can do to communicate to people, even people they don't know how they feel, crying has to be, if not the most, one of the most powerful ways to do that. Tears coming down your face. There's a reason that it's hard to, for most people, do on command. It's supposed to be. I mean, it's supposed to be the clue that I have that you're not lying about this. That you're in some kind of severe distress, emotionally or physically. Um, and, and you're in this kind of very helpless, very painful place. Um, it's this kind of deeply symbolic way of us communicating with each other. Which is why um, they think we can do it and other creatures perhaps can't. We have kind of very advanced social skills um, among each other. Um, in fact, they've, so crying can be kind of cathartic. I don't know if you've had that experience. But scientists have run tests and they've proven that... Um, Crying actually doesn't work as well when you're alone as it does when you're with other people. Um, perhaps because it was meant as this kind of social thing. You're supposed to be crying in front of people. You're supposed to have other people receive and respond to your tears. So if you've ever had your girlfriends over, okay, and you're all depressed, and you're eating ice cream um, and watching a chick flick, okay, and crying and just lamenting how mean guys are and all those things, and then you're done and you all feel better, right? Apparently, if you do that by yourself, scientists say you don't have the same feeling. You need to be doing it with somebody else. You need to be crying in front of somebody else. And, and so you have this kind of um, understanding behind tears, behind this weeping, behind crying. And, and there's kind of the sense that, that it's displaying your weakness, your pain, your helplessness to, to somebody else. And even if you think about crying tears of joy, it's kind of just the flip side of that, right? I mean, when you cry expressing how much you love someone or will miss them, again, you're kind of revealing yourself to them. You're kind of opening up to them kind of the inner levels of, of how you feel and kind of your helplessness without them. Um, kind of the vulnerability you feel um, maybe when they're leaving or maybe when you don't have them or they've hurt you or, or things of that nature. Um, it's this real powerful thing. Now, here's what I want to argue this morning. I, I want to suggest that there is a theological reason behind human beings' ability to emotionally cry. I want to suggest that there's something about God and something about creation and something about humans that's a, a good, maybe a better explanation for why it is that humans do these things that we call crying. Um, I think that you and I live in a tear-soaked world. We live in a world where we have experienced corporately as creation and then individually, all of us in our own, in our own ways, in our own lives, have experienced this deep, of, uh, this deep sense of pain and of, of frustration, of abandonment, of betrayal. And, and crying is one of the ways we express this. And, and I think in a tear-soaked world, um, what you see Jesus doing is coming um, to dry tears. Uh, and I think we're going to see that in John chapter 20 here, okay? So, so look at me with John um, 20. We'll pick up in verse 1. A very interesting passage, one of my favorites. It's an uh, Easter passage, but you are, I checked with the uh, corporate office, you're allowed to preach Easter passages, even when it's not Easter. So we'll read um, John 20, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. So um, this, the one who Jesus loved, John, the writer of the Gospel of John, is referring about John, right? He's talking about himself, okay? That's how he talks about himself in the third person and as the one that Jesus likes, the one that Jesus loves. I always wonder if that's like actually how he talks, right? Or if that's how he's just writing here. 
you know, you're introducing yourself. This is Peter. This is James, my brother. I'm the one that Jesus likes a whole lot, right? I'm the one that Jesus loves. Reminds me of my students, of high schoolers who will like self-title themselves as my favorite student. Like that's how they introduce themselves to people. They're like, oh yeah, Mr. Skinner's favorite student. I'm like, okay. Um, but this is John here, right? Okay, the one that Jesus loves. Now it's going to be important because you have Peter and John who apparently have some kind of rivalry um, with how fast they can run. So we'll see this uh, as we, we go through. So um, Mary goes to Simon and John, the one that Jesus loves, and says to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they have laid him. Verse 3. So Peter going out with the other disciple, John, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. So John really wants you to be aware, okay, that he's faster than Peter, okay? <laughs> if you get nothing else out of this, you need to make John happy, okay? You're, you recognize he's a better runner than Peter is. So both of them were running together. John outruns Peter, reached the tomb first, verse 5. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloth lying there, but he did not go in. Again, just so you don't miss the point, then Simon Peter came following him, okay? <laughs> He came after I did. He was second. I got there first. Um, Simon Peter comes, went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Just so you don't miss the point in verse 8. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, okay? John outran Peter, okay? He got there first. I mean, these phrases have no, like, narrative importance. I mean, there's really no reason for them to be there. Other than that, John's writing this gospel, and he's going to tell the story, okay? I got there first. I got there first. Did I mention I got there first? <laughs> Peter is probably eternally frustrated with this account, okay? My sandal fell off. I got some dust in my eye. This wasn't fair. Okay, so, so the other disciple, John, gets the two first, also went in, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. This is interesting. The question is, what are they believing? It doesn't seem like they understand the resurrection. They're still misunderstanding the scriptures that he's going to rise from the dead. Um, perhaps they're just believing the report that Mary gave them, that he's not in the tomb anymore. Um, but for whatever reason, the disciples go back to their homes in verse 10. They're fine. Peter and John, um, they're not too unnerved by this experience. Again, it doesn't seem like they really understand what's going on. But the tomb's empty. Mary was right. And they go home. Not a whole lot of a kind of emotional... Um, we don't get a whole lot of their kind of emotional mental state revealed to us. But verse 11, I want you to see this. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. Now let's talk about Mary Magdalene, okay? Um, we have a, a, a tradition and a history as the church of, of kind of screening out certain women in the scriptures. Um, so if you were just to read the Bible, um, blank check, okay? With no other influences around you, never hearing anything about it. There would be a handful of women who stand out to you as very, very important characters in the Bible. Um, Mary, the mother of Jesus, would be one. Um, Mary Magdalene, okay, one of Jesus' disciples, would be another. In fact, if you count them all up, Mary Magdalene is named by name in the Gospels more times than most of the 12 disciples. But again, we kind of, we kind of screen out these kind of people. We don't really notice her when we read. I mean, no one really preaches about her. No one really talks about her. Um, Mary Magdalene just kind of gets screened out. Um, again, if you read the resurrection stories, all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, who are all telling different versions of the same story, right? I mean, they're all including different pieces of information. That's what it means to tell a story, right? You're determining what's true um, or what's worth putting in your story, what's worth leaving out, right? It's not necessarily that they're contradicting here. They're just telling it from their point of view. John, right, really wants you to know he's faster than Peter. If Peter was telling the story, I'm guessing we wouldn't have had those phrases, right? It'd just be like, we got to the tomb roughly at the same time. <laughs> John though is going to make sure he tells the story in his kind of point of view and his, his way of telling it um, but all four of the gospels who all tell the resurrection story differently 
all named Mary Magdalene, who was the first one to be there and receive the news, first one to meet the resurrected Jesus. In fact, um, again, all four of the Gospels, when Jesus is being crucified, the disciples run like scared children to the people named who stay by Jesus' side the entire time, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Mary Magdalene. You can kind of understand Mary, the mother, right? I mean, it's her son. She's, she's kind of going to stay there. But then you have this other disciple, who's not one of the 12 disciples, but she's somebody who's been following Jesus throughout his ministry. She's kind of seemingly given up her past life and followed him, just, just kind of gone up and walked away, who stays there, who seems to be bolder than the, the 12 disciples, who seems to have much more of an emotional connection to Jesus. I mean, the love and devotion that she um, appears to have for Jesus in the Gospels is pretty intense. The disciples are pretty... I mean, they're fine with this tomb being empty. Mary, though, is weeping. Mary is not staying wherever they are, right? She's going out to the tomb to continue her mourning. In some of the Gospels, you don't ever read that she leaves. The implication is just that she stayed there the whole time. John says she's coming back to the tomb. The question would be, how much time does she not spend at the tomb? I would think of like a parent whose kid's in the hospital, right? I mean, they're there 20 hours a day, and they maybe go home for a change of clothes. And they come back to grieve. These three-day process, she, she barely leaves the tomb. She's crying. She's weeping. She's, she's concerned about Jesus. All we know about Mary from her past, very little, is that when Jesus met her, he drove out seven unclean spirits. So she had some kind of uh, oppression in her life, some kind of past. Jesus drives out 12 spirits, and she's transformed. She's healed, and she follows him very faithfully as a very devoted follower. Over time, legends have arisen about Mary Magdalene. Um, so that she was a prostitute. Again, we don't know that. Um, or that she was a woman, and other gospel stories, women who aren't named, that was really her. So she was the one who cried on Jesus' feet, and those kind of things. Again, those are all just legends. We just had this really important name, Mary Magdalene, so we put that in other places in the gospel stories. If you pay attention to outside of kind of Christianity, like Da Vinci Code theories come up, right? So people will hypothesize that Mary Magdalene was actually married to Jesus. The reason you see reactions like this is because they had a very, very intimate marital relationship. Between the two of them. In fact, some will say they haven't had a kid. And so you could like find right somewhere, somewhere, one of Jesus' family is still alive, right? It's kind of the plot. Um, and I don't think you need to need to go that far necessarily with any of this. But I do think one of the reasons it surprises us when we hear theories like that is because we go, Mary Magdalene, who is that anyways? Right? And she's mentioned in the gospels, right? If the resurrection stories are about anyone other than Jesus, I don't think they are, but if they were, they'd be stories about Mary Magdalene. It's a story about her at the tomb. And it's important, I think, that it's her. I think it's important that um, she is the one who receives this news. Her devotion is the one that's shown to us. And I also think it's important that it's a woman doing these things. Again, we, we kind of have this history of screening out in kind of this male-dominated society. So I'm not a feminist. You can't be if you're not a girl. Try to sign up, okay? Um, but when men have read the Bible throughout the scriptures, we've ignored the women in the Bible. Um, what you'll see here is Mary Magdalene, once she sees the tomb, she goes to the disciples. After she greets Jesus, she goes to the disciples. Um, so Augustine, St. Augustine calls her, Mary Magdalene, the apostle of the apostles. She's the one who preaches to the ones who will go preach. In a, in a male-dominated world, this first century, it is hugely important, historically, that Mary's the first one to get the news. She goes and tells the men. And then it's important, just from like a writing perspective, that the disciples would even include this. It's so countercultural. It's so countercultural. Um, in my kind of Baptist upbringing, women weren't allowed to preach um, if there were men present. 
And so uh, they could preach, but not if there were men around. They could only preach other women or children. And so there was even like this age of accountability thing, right? So a woman could look out, and if she saw 12-year-old boys, she could still speak. But if there were 14-year-old boys, she couldn't, right? Because that was like the arbitrary line we drew. Now you're speaking to men. Um, and kind of the joke among some scholars is like, don't read the Gospels, right? You have Mary Magdalene, a woman here, preaching to the 12 disciples. She's the one who goes and announces the news to them that the Lord has been resurrected. But you have this, this, this woman of faith, this woman of devotion, who has this very special relationship with Jesus. She's very sad that um, Jesus has um, been crucified, and then she's upset and confused that the Jesus body has been taken away. So she goes back to the tomb after Peter and John have left. She's weeping. She looks in the tomb, and in verse 12 we read this. She saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. That um, that word turned in verse 14 will be important for us. She turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Now, supposing him to be the gardener, this will also be important. I don't think Mary is actually all that wrong when she thinks that Jesus is the gardener. She is wrong but maybe less than she thinks she is. She said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbanai, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to the Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. It's a real emotional account. A real dramatic reunion between Mary Magdalene and Jesus here. And it kind of toys with your emotions. You kind of go up and down as you read it. So, so as readers of the gospel, we know Jesus resurrects, okay? We know what's coming, and we're kind of excited for Mary to figure it out as we're reading along. So she's at the tomb. She's weeping. She's sad. And then all of a sudden, there are two angels there. And it's, it's pretty interesting, verse 14, that she turns from the angels to look at what she thinks is the gardener. Have you ever thought about that? I've never seen two angels before, but I would think it would take a lot to pull my attention away from them. For whatever reason, she senses this man behind her, and she turns from looking at two angels in dazzling white to look at this gardener. And we're excited as readers. She's going to get to meet her Lord. He's resurrected. He's alive again. What a cool scene. And then she thinks he's the gardener. And we're a little frustrated, right? I mean, we're already a little frustrated when she thought his body had been taken away. But we could kind of understand... Okay, she doesn't know as much as we know now, and so we're kind of going along with her, empathizing with her. But now that she's looking at him and she thinks he's the gardener, we're a little bit, we're less likely to empathize. Okay, figure it out. This is Jesus. Jesus asks her a question. Why are you weeping? Who are you looking for? She says, my Lord, I think they've taken him away. If, if you know where he is, just tell me. And then Jesus says, Mary. And she realizes who he is. I mean, this is so poetic and and dramatic. Jesus doesn't say, it's me, Jesus. Surprise! He says her name. And it's not just his voice that she recognizes, because he's already spoken to her. I mean, he's already said, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And she doesn't catch who he is there. But it's when she hears him say her name that she knows who it is. And her weeping is turned into to rejoicing. She clings to him, she recognizes him, and he sends her out with a mission, with a job to do. Now, again, if you look in verse 14, um, 
that she turns from the angel and sees Jesus standing there. She thinks he's the gardener. And then after he says her name in verse 16, look at what it says again. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbanai. You've actually got two occurrences of this Greek word for turning here. So Mary turns twice to look at Jesus. Now I want you to imagine this um, physically, okay, in your mind. If I am saying this way and I'm going to turn to look at you, okay, then you say something, I say something, and then you're going to tell me I turned again to look at you. What's going on? I mean, 360, right? And look at you again. I mean, how can you turn twice to look at somebody? John is kind of playing with words here. John does this a lot in his gospel. He, he uses words to mean multiple things. Light um, means both light that you see with and then the light of Christ, the light of God's life. Life means multiple things. Um, belief in John's gospel. You can believe or you can believe. I think John's saying you can turn to Jesus and then you can turn to Jesus. Something happened inside of her at the deepest level when he says her name and she turns again to him and it clicks. She knows who he is. She knows what he's done. She turns twice here. Now, at its basic level, this story in John 20 is just this kind of dramatic, beautiful, um, but kind of surface level story about Jesus being reunited with one of his disciples. But when you set it in its larger literary context and larger kind of theological context, it takes on some more meaning. Um, so for my thesis, I've been studying a guy named St. Cyril of Alexandria. Okay? And I wanted to share some of his thoughts on this passage with you this morning. Um, Cyril was a 5th century church father um, who plays a really important role in the history of the church. Um, so he was one of the guys who stood up in the early church and argued for correct thinking about Jesus. So there were just all these questions about how do we talk about Jesus? How do we understand him? Is he fully God? And they would get together and think about it and say, yes, he's 100% God. And they'd say, well, then is he fully man? And they'd get together and think about it and say, well, yes, he's fully man. And then the next question, the third big question was, well, then is he two things? I mean, is he kind of God at some points and then man at other points? Like kind of a, a schizophrenic person, right? Like, like sometimes Jesus will do things as God. And then sometimes he'll do things as man. There's like a light switch, right? He's got two people inside of him. Um, and Nestorius is the heretic who used to talk about this. And Cyril stands up against him and says, no, Jesus is one. There's a one subject to Jesus. Um, which is why we can say anything that happened to Jesus happens to God as well. Um, they're one. And, and Cyril's real important in that role. If you listen closely, most preachers are Nestorians. It's a heresy. They speak when they read the Gospels. And when Jesus does a miracle, they'll say, look at Jesus, God, doing this. And when Jesus gets tired, they'll say, look at Jesus, the man, getting tired, right? No, Cyril says, you're reading it wrong. When Jesus gets tired, look at the word of God, become flesh, get tired. If that toys with your understanding of God, Cyril says, good. It should. It's weird that God became human. It breaks our logic. It breaks our laws of language. But we shouldn't shy away from that. We should embrace that truth. We should embrace that mystery. Now, one of the things Cyril thought... And hold with me, we're coming to John 20. One of the things he thought was that all of Scripture was about creation and new creation. So God creates, it's good and it's lovely, but it falls, something breaks, but then God is recreating all things. He's, he's doing creation over again. And so Cyril will often use this language. He'll talk about Jesus as the second Adam. Let's talk about Jesus as the last Adam, the second Adam. And he draws that language from two places in the Scripture. And my Bible nerds might know where this is, okay? Mental quiz. The first place is Romans 5. And then 1 Corinthians 15. In Romans 5, Paul says this. He, he kind of puts Adam and Christ in a parallel relationship. And says, As Adam disobeyed and brought death to all the world, now watch Christ, the second Adam, obey and bring life to all the world. They both are kind of representative men. They both do something that affects everybody. One disobeys and brings death. 
One obeys and brings life. And then 1 Corinthians 15, you get kind of the same idea there. They're both representative men. In Adam, all die, but in Christ, all are resurrected. What happened to Adam will happen to all the people in him who come after him, but what happens to Christ, his life, his resurrection, will happen to all the people who come after him, who are in him, in Christ. There's kind of parallel relationship. Now what Cyril does is he takes that from Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, and he runs with it everywhere. Every time he reads a passage, he starts talking about Jesus, the second Adam. And things start clicking for him that didn't click previously. So when he reads John 20, and he's wondering what's happening here when Jesus is talking to the weeping Mary, he goes, let's remember who Jesus is. He's the second Adam. And let's remember what John's gospel is about. It's about new creation. So John begins his gospel with these words. Do you remember this? John 1, 1. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. John is repeating the words of Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John's telling a creation story. But his creation story is a little bit different than, than Genesis' story. Um, in Genesis, you've got a form, uh, the, the formation of stars and heavens and mountains and streams and rivers and animals and, and humans. You've got the world kind of coming together. In John's creation story, though, it's about a man named Jesus. And about the life that he's bringing to creation. The light that he's bringing to creation. In fact, scholars have noticed if you studied the book of John, there are seven big things that Jesus does in the, the book of John before he's crucified. Seven big signs, seven big works, seemingly mirroring the seven days of creation. John's telling a creation story, but it's about a new creation. It's about something God's doing new in his world. In John 20, he's trying to get you to see this. So look in John 20, verse 1, the, the gospel of John, the author here. I'm John the apostle, the one that's faster than Peter, the one that Jesus loves a whole lot. He's trying to get you to see these creation echoes. So in 20 verse 1, he says this, On the first day of the week, Jesus resurrects. He'll say this more than once. It's as if seven things have passed throughout his gospel, like the seven days of creation. And then on day number 8, a day no one's been before, something that was dead comes back to life. Creation starts over. New creation on the first day of the week. You'll remember the scene of the first creation, where the first humans are placed, is a garden. Jesus is buried and resurrects in a garden. This is why I think when Mary recognizes Jesus as the gardener, it's maybe not that far off. This is the one who created the garden, who wanted to, to watch it bloom and grow and be beautiful. This is the one actually who never gave up on that garden project who's back to see it through. We might say Jesus' resurrection happens on the first day of new creation. This is the eighth day. This is the day when God starts making all things new again, beginning with his son. And so one of the things that Jesus does as the second Adam, okay, as the new Adam, is he's going to undo all the curses and all the, the things that have happened, all the effects of sin and death from the first Adam. So the first Adam sins, all these bad things happen to the world. Now the second Adam, through his life, through his obedience, through his resurrection, is going to undo these things. And so Cyril wants us to go back to Genesis 3 and see what some of these things are he's undoing. So go with me to Genesis chapter 3. He's going to add some depth to what's happening here when Jesus wipes the tears off of Mary's face. Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve have fallen, and God shows up and then announces some curses to them, some things that are going to be changed because of their decisions. In Genesis 3, verse 14, we'll start reading, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust shall eat all the days of your life. Verse 15, 
I'll put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He will bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. It's the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel. That, that one from the woman will come and defeat the serpent. Verse 16. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. So you return to the ground, for of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now if you look at the curse that's given to the woman, he says, I'll multiply your pain and childbearing, and in pain you shall bring forth children. You might translate this, in sorrow you will bring forth children. Or even in tears you will bring forth children. There's something that changes about creation itself to where new life comes, but it comes with this act of crying and weeping. It comes with the sense that everything is somehow wrong. That the innocence and perfection that we once had has been lost. That even with this new life is coming, pain is coming as well. Something is broken and off and misguided here. So Cyril says this about um, what's happening here. Um, So here's a quote for you from Cyril. He says, For by Adam's transgression, as in the first fruits of the race, the sentence went forth to the whole world. Dust you are, and to dust you will return. And to the woman in special, he says, In sorrow you shall bring forth children. To be rich in sorrow, then, as by way of a penalty, was the fate of woman. One of the things that happens because of the first Adam's transgression, because of of what happens at the beginning of creation, is that women in particular are given this this curse, experience this, this richness in sorrow, this experience of weeping. And in fact, you would even want to say it's passed on to all of humanity because all of humanity comes from women. It's as they give birth, they pass this on, this experience of brokenness, this experience of, of pain, this, this ability to cry emotional tears. It's part of the curse. And so when Jesus shows up in the garden on the first day of the week and sees a woman crying, he says, why are you weeping? Don't you know I've come to, to undo these curses? Don't you know I've come to overturn these things that Adam brought for you? And he wipes her tears away. Are we not seeing new creation played out in front of us? Is this not a microcosm, a small picture of what it is that Christ has come to do for Mary and the disciples and for all of creation, for you and for I, to undo the effects of the fall, to undo the effects of sin and death? I got this in your worship guide, another quote from Cyril, so poetic. He says this, It was therefore necessary that by the mouth of him that had passed the sentence of condemnation, the burden of that ancient curse should be removed. Our Savior Christ, now wiping away the tears from the eyes of the woman, or rather of all womankind, as in Mary the firstfruits. So that same voice who gave that curse in Genesis 3 is now speaking to Mary. I'm saying there's there's no reason to cry anymore. So if Adam's the new... Um, or if Christ the new Adam, in his distance, Mary Magdalene is now the new Eve. For us, Eve receives this penalty to be rich in sorrow. Now Mary's the first one to be freed from that penalty, to have her sorrow turned into joy. This work of new creation going out to God's people. 
This is a theme I think that you'll find throughout the scriptures, exemplified here in John chapter 20, that, that tears, these emotional tears of pain, aren't supposed to be part of God's creation. It's an anomaly in creation, and God, in his work of new creation, is going to get rid of them. So I'll read you a couple scriptures from um, our Bible. In Psalm 56, 8, the psalmist is talking to God, he's praying, and he says this, You have kept count of my tossing and put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? The image he used here of God recording the tears of the psalmist, saying, I'm noticing the pain that you're going through. I'm noticing the brokenness that you've experienced. And I'll, I'll take care of it. I'm keeping a record. We'll do something about it. Isaiah 25, 8, talking about God now, it says this, He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Now imagine how personal and intimate of an act it is to wipe someone's tears away from their face. I mean, it's one thing to pat someone on the back who's crying. It's one thing to be with them, to hug them. It's another thing to actually like, touch their face and wipe each tear away. Now, in the context of Isaiah, this is a God Isaiah's been talking about who's real big. He knows everything that's happening. He's beyond you and I. He's stretched out the stars and the heavens. And now he's coming for this intimate act, close one-on-one individually with his people who have suffered and, and touching them and caressing their face and wiping tears away off of it. Later in Isaiah, Isaiah 65, 19, in a passage about God recreating earth, he says, I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. And then in Revelation 21, 4, this passage is the end of our scriptures about the new creation, new heavens and new earth. It says this, This is actually John writing once again, and he says this, perhaps thinking about John 20. This is the same apostle here writing Revelation um, years later. Perhaps he has Mary Magdalene in his mind as he writes this. Um, He, God, will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. There's this theme throughout the scriptures that God is, is seeing and recognizing the tears of his creation, and, and, and one day is coming to do something new, which will include wiping those tears away, recognizing the pain and hurt that's, that's been had, that's been experienced, and then leading his people on to something new, onto new life. Now, when I was a kid, I had a very interesting experience happen to me. And actually, this is the first today, it was the first time I've ever talked about it in public, I just realized that. So, um, maybe the first time I've ever told anybody, I'm not sure if I've ever talked to anybody about this, um, I'm not a super mystical person. If you know me very well, you know that, okay? I'm not like a super spiritual person. That sounds really bad because I'm a pastor. I have to edit that out of the podcast. Just by that, I mean, I mean, I don't have the experience of God coming and audibly talking to me constantly, right? I mean, I just don't have those kind of experiences. Um, and I don't feel the need to make that kind of stuff up. I mean, it just doesn't, that's just not the kind of life and relationship with God that I have. Um, but occasionally, I've experienced something that kind of defies my explanations. And, and when I was a little kid... There was something that happened to me that I would kind of mark as the end of my kind of childhood innocence. And kind of the sense, I think we all kind of have it, right? When you're a child, the world is just this great, beautiful thing. And then there's that one moment where you realize that things are not as great as they seem. That great pain can be had in creation. And you kind of lose a little bit of that innocence. You kind of harden up a little bit. You kind of get accustomed to the world around you. So when I was a little kid, 
I don't know exactly what happened. I don't know the specifics of it. Um, but for whatever reason at school and however it happened, um, I think I was like seven, seven years old around an elementary school. Um, some of my friends made fun of me that day. Okay. Again, I don't even know what they said. I don't know what they made fun of. Uh, but for whatever reason, my heart was broken. I mean, my heart was crushed. And I sobbed and sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. And I got home and I sobbed and I sobbed and I sobbed. I mean, it was the saddest thing surely you'd ever seen in your life. Um, for whatever reason, right? I mean, it just crushed my little soul. And I can remember vividly, I mean, vividly remember this. Um, being in my room as a little kid, one of my earliest memories, and crying on my bed and then falling asleep. And then waking up hours, hours, hours later. Dinner had passed. People were in bed. I woke up. This, again, I think the first time I've ever had that experience where you wake up and you're like, where did the time go? As an adult, that happens more often. I'll take a nap, wake up. It's time to go to work in the morning, right? Just me? Okay. Um, <laughs> but this is kind of the first time that, that happens to me as a kid. And, and I remembered at the time vividly and, and now still vividly this sense of while I was sleeping, not a dream, more just this feeling, the sense that there was a man holding me, like in a hug, like an embrace. Um, and I'd never felt more peaceful or more comforted or more safe or more loved. Now, I'm sure psychoanalysts can have field days with this, right? Daddy issues and all kinds of things kind of going on, right? As a kid, I attributed this to God. And it was this remarkable experience in my, my little life. I mean, I really did feel like a different person afterwards. When I went to sleep crying and woke up feeling like, Really a peace I'd never felt before. A comfort I'd never felt before. And as a little kid, up until today, I think about that experience probably at least once every month, maybe two months. I mean, it really is kind of this thing that I think about every now and then, this experience that I've had. And this just this weird thing. I've never explained it. never, you know, never spent too much time thinking about it. But just this kind of weird, fun, beautiful thing that happened to me when I was a kid. And as I grow up, I'm taught to, to explain things like that. Again, right, like, it's like a father figure coming to protect me. It's my mind, you know, creating this um, figure of protection and safety to make me feel better, to comfort me. It's me adapting to the social situations, all those kind of things, right? Um, and then as I read the scriptures, I get these promises that, that God is a God who, who comes and wipes tears away. And God's a God who comes and comforts people. And God is a God who comes to people who've had their, their innocence taken away and, and wraps his arms around them. And I started going, well, maybe, maybe you can call me crazy, but maybe there was something going on there as a kid. And it was that same room years later, 10 years later, where as a, a senior in high school, depressed, anxious, broken, insomniac in the middle of the night, I sat there crying and read through the Gospel of Matthew. We got to the end of the book of Matthew. Jesus was resurrected. All authority in heaven and earth had been given to him. And I thought, I, I believe this. I think this is true. And I stopped crying. And I felt a peace like I never felt before. I felt a joy like I never felt before. And I thought, maybe this, what this Jesus guy came to do, take people who are broken and hurt, who are weeping, and say, something new is happening. Let me wipe those tears away. I think for some of us, there's this, this, this period that we've had, there's this experience we've been through where, where you, you feel this brokenness and this pain. Where you cry and you show this helplessness, this sense of, of hurt. I think what you see in John 20, I think what you see throughout the scriptures is that one of the things that Jesus has come to do is to wipe those tears away. 
I mean, so some questions I'd have to you. I, I, I want to say this morning, I think it's the same Jesus who's wiping the, the tear-soaked face of Mary, who then comes to you and I and invites us into his new creation, invites us to experience that same life, that same joy, that same peace. I mean, I would, I would wonder, I would ask you this, have you heard him call your name? Such a beautiful part of this John 20 story. Not have you seen him, right? Not even have you talked to him. Not have you intellectually assented to the fact that he's resurrected, the fact that these things are going on, this is true. Have you heard him call your name and had it click? And say, I'm yours. This is who you are and this is what you're doing. Or we could maybe say it like this, have you turned to him? Again, not have you turned to him, but have you, have you had that second turn to him? Not is there a rumor of resurrection, but is there that experience of resurrection where again it, it clicks and you hear his voice and you say, this is real and this is true and this is beautiful. Have you been sent out to share that news? The first garden, Adam and Eve are driven out because of their sin. And the second garden, Eve leaves rejoicing with a message, with a mission to go share the news. I would ask, have you been sent out? Have you been sent to share the news, to share the life that Christ has come to give us? This is his work. This is what he's done. He started this new creation, the first day of creation, implying that there's going to be more to come. Not everything's fixed. Not everything's taken care of yet. But it's happening. And you're invited to participate in it. You're invited to find that life, to find that joy. To find Christ coming into your life through His Spirit and undoing the effects of sin and death and the fall and freeing you and wiping tears away and forgiving sins and and walking you into new paths of life and new paths of obedience, new joy that you could never imagine, new relationships, reconciled, uh, a reconciliation of past relationships, new dreams and new visions. This morning I would, would just ask you have, you, have you heard him say your name? Have you seen this Jesus? Have you heard his invitation? Not just to Mary, not just to the disciples, but to you, to come find your tears wiped away, come find your, your sins forgiven, come find a, a new life for you to walk in, for you to rejoice, for you to share with the world around you. Let's pray together.